Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence with psychiatrist Bernard David Beitman, MD. Dr. Beitman is the founder of the Coincidence Project. The project encourages people like you to tell each other coincidence stories. To learn more about Dr. Beitman's work, put Connecting with Coincidence in your web browser. You'll find his book, his Psychology Today blog, and the interviews from this podcast. And now your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. I am Bernard Beitman, MD, a psychiatrist. I study the mind and brain in its physical and cultural contexts. Meaningful coincidences like synchronicity and serendipity provide clues to how our minds and our brains connect deeply to our bodies, other people, nature, and our environment. Meaningful coincidences occur in most aspects of life. You just need to expect them. You can pre-order my new book, Meaningful Coincidences, Serendipity and Synchronicity, How and Why They Happen. Uh, there'll be links in the text below. I'm gonna, as usual, I'll start off with a coincidence story and I like to give them titles. So here's, this one has two. Um, uh, the title of, the first title is, Are We Connected Through Some Invisible Bungee Cord? Or another one is, what are you doing here? Rachel, my 25-year-old psychotherapy patient, very much liked Brandon, but was certain that he found her annoying. Each time she saw him, she became anxious, so she tried to avoid any situations where he was likely to be. Earlier this week, this week, she was being visited by her aunt and uncle from another town. Her aunt had arranged for them to attend a casual business gathering one afternoon with 20 other people. The hired server asked Rachel what she wanted to drink. It was Brandon. She was trying to avoid him. And then her aunt arranged something for her to then run into him. And she had no idea about any of this and wouldn't have known anyway. She was trying to avoid him, and then she couldn't. Uh, Rachel said, my life is a movie. Our guest today is Dr. Dan Siegel, uh, is a world-renowned expert in relationships. I will ask him about this meaningful coincidence. Dr. Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindfulness Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He is also the executive director of the MindSight Institute, which focuses on the development of MindSight, teaches insight, empathy, and integration in individuals, families, and communities. Dr. Siegel has published a lot, a lot, in both professional and lay audiences. He's got five, 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 five New York Times bestsellers, two of which are Aware, the Science and the Practice of Presence, Mind, a journey to the heart of being human. He's also got books for the general public, and he serves as the founding editor for the Norton Professional Series on Interpersonal Neurobiology. Interpersonal Neurobiology. Now, that may sound fancy to some of you, but it's such an important way of thinking about human relationships, both the brain and the mind together. That that Norton Professional Series on the Interpersonal Neurobiology currently contains over 70, 70 textbooks. 
it's really a pleasure to have you, Dan, have you on the show, Dan, and back to being talking with you. So welcome. Thanks, Bernie. Great to see you again. And uh, it's an honor to be here with you to talk about these fascinating ideas and uh, these ways of opening our minds to different ways of thinking about reality. You've got it. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah. Different ways of thinking about reality. If I were to ask you directly and to give me like the elevator speech, what what is the different view of reality or different views of reality you are trying to bring to the general public? That I am or, or coincidence? You, you are. You are. Oh, first. me. me. You, oh. you, you, Dan Siegel. Yeah. Oh, I, I guess if I had to summarize it, I would say the first thing was for our field in mental health to consider the possibility that the mind is much more than the brain in your head. Uh, and that that's, I guess, the starting place because, you know, when I was in training in the early eighties in psychiatry, you know, it was before the decade of the brain, but still people were saying things like the mind is the brain's activity and Hippocrates had said it 2,500 years ago, the father of modern medicine, the father of modern psychology, reaffirmed it in 1890, William James. So I would say for, from a professional point of view, that was the main thing I've been working on for the last 30 years. That the mind is, that the brain is more than just the mind or mind is more than just the brain. In and, both ways. You could say both, both ways. ways, absolutely, yeah. In both, it's bi-directional. That's, that's good. Yeah. I can get confused correctly sometimes. No, no, but that's two, the, both ways are right. And, 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 and the reason to do that, um, among many reasons, is especially in our field in psychiatry, you know, uh, there, was, there was a push, I think, to find some very special way that being a division of medicine, we, we offered medicines with the concrete idea that healing somehow had to do with molecules only and that molecules needed molecules to be made better. So you had to give a pill. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why I think psychiatry went in that direction. When, and so if you think mind is only brain, and so if you have a mind difficulty, you know, a psychiatric disorder, then you have a problem with your brain. Well, if the brain is made of a bunch of molecules, then you better give a pill. So, you know, there's a lot of financial reasons why corporations would be interested in that. There's a lot of reasons if you're a researcher just studying the brain, why you'd put all your eggs in that basket. Um, but, you know, if you're really trying to help people, help people's minds, uh, it might be good to take a step back from those factors and take a deep breath and say, you know, maybe Hippocrates didn't have the whole story. Maybe William James was understandably focusing on an exciting part of understanding psychology, but it's not the full story. And that's, you know, that leads to a, a way of working with mental health that uh, really allows someone steeped in science and medicine and, and the broader fields of mental health to actually say, okay, mind is including the brain, but is not limited to it. You, first of all, you get the whole body going with you. So I call that the embodied brain, but the mind is also relational. And so that gets into a whole big discussion, but but the relational and the embodied aspect of mind are equal, but just differentiated aspects of what mental life is all about. So it means you're a part of a community, you're part of relationships, you know, uh, that are, you will know, we'll talk about how that manifests scientifically, but 
um, you know, then you see mental health depends on your connections, your social connections to other people, because that's where your mind is also. Is the term extended brain what you apply there? How you know, you- it's so interesting. You know, uh, we do have a tendency to want to use the word brain. And Antonio Damasio has a beautiful way of saying that the brain in our head, that's parallel distributed neural networks, these spider web-like interconnections of neurons in the head is actually the third brain. And you have a brain in your intestine and a brain in your heart, the first two brains. And in fact, the third brain is in service of the other two, as he beautifully says in a book called The Strange Order of Things. And when we've talked together, he has this great way of just clearly articulating that it's the head brain that's, you know, the servant, but it's gotten mixed up and it thinks it's the master. And so what happens is it is the only one with language. So it uses a term like the brain when in fact it should be saying I'm the third brain. But in any of it, you, depending on how you want to use that word, um, if you're going to talk about information processing being extended beyond the body, like in cognitive science, we say information processing or cognition is embodied and enacted. That's all about the body. Um, but once we start saying it's extended and it's embedded in culture, you know, you it's probably, I think, a good idea not to use the word brain, to let that stay with a bodily organ, and whether it's in the intestine as a network around the gut or around the heart or in the head. So, so you say, okay, you have three brains, fine. So if you were going to say, yeah, and it's extended beyond the body, I would, or like the internet, I would start calling that the mind, that if the mind in part, part of what the mind is about is information processing. So you don't, that is not limited to an organ of the body. Good, good. Um, I've just started to have a trialogue um, with my brain, my heart, and my intestines. Yeah. So I consult consult them. Good, I love that. I say, well, what do you think we should do? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's differentiating these different sources of information. I love it. How did it, how's it going? It's very, it goes very well. Like yesterday, the heart had to mediate between intestines and the brain. Yeah. And so it was like 50-50. So there's, a third, there's another element that I've come up with is there is an observer of this trialogue. Absolutely, yeah. The observing self, I call it, or self-observer, self-observer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the self-observer is more than just an observer. It does sometimes has to make a final decision when you get, when they get all caught up. And I don't, I, how do you think of the self-observer or the observing the self-observer in the midst of this kind of discussion? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I one of the, uh, I think fascinating things humanity has going for it is consciousness. Um, and within consciousness, you can have an awareness of pure sensation, like the feeling of a breeze on your cheek. And you can have an awareness um, that observes and witnesses and narrates. So I call that own, you know, it observes, witness, narrate, O-W-N. Uh, and, it, and it has this function where it can oversee the head, the heart, and the gut for sure. Um, I, and to give you an example to support exactly what you're saying, Bernie, a dear friend of mine had a, a, um, a child who, you know, was deciding where to go and she didn't know where to go for college. She got into a couple of colleges and she just was torn apart 
because one was really close to her parents and she thought that's where they wanted her to go. And it was close to them and she did, they didn't want her to go there. Um, but she kind of liked this other one, which was far away and that they didn't think so much of it, but it was a really good match for her. So I had her do a trialogue, just like you're saying. I said, you know, you have your brain in your gut, a brain in your heart, your brain in your head. Let's go through and tune into each one. So she tuned into each one and each one, you know, the two on the bottom, you know, had their own opinion and the head one was torn, you know, with all these logical contradictions and blah, 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 you know, but who was I talking to? Because it was exactly like you're saying, there was an observing capacity that in this trialogue you're talking about, you have a fourth, you know, overarching observer that can say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm taking votes now. I'm kind of like the, the, uh, chairperson of the of the committee the committee I'm, I'm i'm i will make a vote if i need to you know break the tie but i can see that the committee members are two to one and uh so i'm going to chime in here you know and say it's it's a go we're going to the faraway college you know which she did and she's very happy um and the parents were totally fine with it you know but the kid no longer she wasn't like ripped apart she said you know i did a review I found out the different things and reasons why I had mixed feelings. I made a decision and I'm happy about it, you know? So life doesn't always go so well. Sometimes it's more 50, 50, and then your observing part, you know, wakes up in the middle of the night, doesn't know what to do, but yeah. So I think we do have an awareness. I, I wrote a book called aware, which tries to, you know, look at the difference between like pure awareness and this observing, witnessing, narrating function of which you can be aware of, and they're, they're actually different. So it's, um, it's a fascinating space of saying, okay, one aspect of me is kind of more like a, an executive, but a pure awareness itself is not an executive. It's just the capacity for knowing, for being conscious. And the executive sometimes has its own bias or own obligations. And getting into pure awareness, I think, is a an, uh, another step for her, for example, just to rest in awareness to allow even the observing part to be appreciated for what it is. But um, life can be actually more open uh, without that executive always being in control. Beautifully said, Dan. Beautifully said. Thank you. Uh, mm. You're uh, welcome. I, you, uh, what a, I get higher fun with. Um, your own, but I'll call it my term, uh, observing self-observer. There's an observer of the self-observer. <laughs> Forever. Mirrors and mirrors. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a mirror thing. That go, and then there's the observer of the observer of the self-observer. Oh, my God. Welcome to the world of a neurotic therapist, you know, like myself. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, One time I was at a dinner recently. Our kids are now adults and they had their significant others and we were all on a vacation and I started talking about something, you know, which was just like what you're saying. And, and, and one of the people said, you know, you really like think a lot about this. And and I, I had to just give an editorial comment. I said, well, you're just getting to know me. And, you know, this is like what I'm doing for like my whole life. And it, it isn't even I did it because I was a therapist. I was doing this kind of observing the observing the observer, which is why I became a therapist. 
And so it's just reinforcing that. And I want to apologize because it was like, what kind of dinner conversation is this? I was talking about, you know, the emotions you have in response to have emotions in response to the emotions you have because you're having emotions about the emotions you feel and others who's feeling what you're feeling. You know, it was like, it was really kind of nutty what I said, not nutty, but it was like for someone who didn't grow up in a family like that, it's like, whoa, where are you coming from? And, um, you know, so we can have a sense of humor. Well, we, we need to. But I'm glad and we're, I'm going to move it up. We'll move to something else. But I'm glad to find a like minded uh, dump, dump, dump that we just yeah. went through. because uh. It's hard because I think it has implications for uh, efficiency and therapeutic change. But we can psychotherapeutic change. I think we can leave that uh, uh, for a, another discussion we might have. So let's let's go to um, the coincidence thing. Um, Tell us about uh, one of your good coincidence stories. Yeah, well, let me start, if I, if I could, with two uh, kind of uh, statements. Um, the first is a statement I always like to say when I get into, you know, talking about interpersonal neurobiology or, you know, the way we do things at the Mindsight Institute, which is, you know, as a, 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 a white, cisgender, heterosexual male with a lot of education, I've got a huge amount of privilege and incredible blind spots from my blind spots. So it makes me especially vulnerable, but everybody has implicit bias. So I might say something with Bernie that uh, may feel like uh, someone's not understood or excluded. And so what I try to make sure I remember is that everyone has a different perspective. And so if I say anything as we're having this conversation, reach out to our administrator at admin at mindsightinstitute.com so we can keep the conversation going because, you know, the idea is that there's no such thing as perfection. The idea is that we show up and are present and receive feedback in a positive way. So, you know, like, for example, recently I was mentioning something about taking a moment and of silence for what's going on in Ukraine. And I had given my disclosure ahead of time. Someone wrote to us and said, you know, what about all the other places in the world? And she had relatives and other places that she mentioned, you know, that are also having people murdered, you know, and killed and destruction. So you didn't mention them. That really hurt my feelings. And I really appreciated her comments. Um, and so I, you know, I realized, yeah, we're, are, we're focused on Ukraine right now, but the whole world has humans hurting humans. Um, and we got to really work together to try to stop the madness we've had for our whole history. So I'm not saying that's going to be easy, but she was absolutely right. So I, it was something like that, that, you know, that by inviting people in, we received her feedback. She probably would have been so nervous to email us and say, you know, Hey, well, you know, that didn't feel good. But so that's the first thing. The second thing I want to say is that we'll get into the coincidences. Um, but since I, I'm trained as a scientist and I've talked about coincidences with scientists and they, you know, colleagues, and they will very, very vehemently say, Dan, if you do a statistical analysis of the number of times these overlapping things, whether you call them synchronicity or coincidence, whatever you call them, all the things, like I'll give examples, like I'll give today. They said, if you did a statistical analysis of all that, you'd realize it's far more common that coincidences don't happen 
And when you just look from a larger point of view, since the human mind is a pattern seeking organ, you know, it def desperately wants to see things that have meaning to them and, and attributes meaning to even meaningless things you randomly put on a screen. You know, uh, of course, you're going to think they're coincidences. So please don't get mixed up by your belief and what is true. And so I want to I want to quote them while I'm paraphrasing them, because I really think that's important to say. I mean, we'll talk about, you know, some examples that are so specific. Um, you got to say, how could that be just a random simultaneity of things? Uh, and so, but I will always, I, I myself always have a doubting mind and I kind of channel that articulation from these colleagues. You know, we were at dinner and I was talking about this. And how exciting, here's a way of explaining it. They go, you're out of your mind. You know, it's do the statistics on non-coincidences and, you know, make a big deal of that, but you don't. You just find the random things that do statistically are predicted to happen because when you compare the amount of times they don't happen, the amount of times they do, just out of statistics, of course, they're happening randomly. In large populations, any weird thing can happen. Yeah, uh, exactly. That, that's the basic idea. And it's the law of large number of very large numbers. There is no such law. Uh, a guy from Stanford made that up as a law. Uh, he just liked it. So he called it a law. Uh, what they don't get, what they don't get is that statistics do are part of every coincidence that happens. There is a probability of every coincidence. We can't measure it sometimes, but there is a probability of it happening. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. But oh. just because there's a probability doesn't mean that's the full explanation of the coincidence. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And I, I look, I'm, I'm, I myself, um, like one of the interpretations for these coincidences or synchronicities, um, uh, you know, is to look to quantum physics. And, you know, I, I um, was exploring this uh, uh, about a year ago. No, it must have been before the pandemic. So a while ago and um, on stage, I was bringing it up. And a physicist, uh, physician, philosopher came to me afterwards and urged me to stop doing it. Um, and then what was fascinating, he, he actually studied quantum physics in graduate school. And, and I just watched a whole series of explications that he had um, about why a number of the things that I'm gonna actually bring up that quantum physicists not only talk about, but a, a paper in 2015 is called Closing the Final Loophole in a peer-reviewed quantum physics journal that showed that this process called non-locality or entanglement is real and it even exists beyond just microstates of electrons and photons but also with matter um, but this colleague of mine pointed out how uh, erroneous the thinking of those science not those particular ones but in general people believe in entanglement who are quantum physicists and how there's no such thing so I, I literally just listened to this two days ago. So I'm filled with his doubting scientific presentation that even the quantum physicists who give us a way to understand, in my view anyway, um, a, a, a saw what I, I would have said before two days ago is a solid peer-reviewed view of entanglement. Now he just kind of totally 
in his philosophical set of arguments um, uh, points to a lot of doubt about it. I still am left with it. I'll give you, I can give you the coincidences and everyone listening can decide for yourself, uh, you know, but it, it, there's about five of them I could talk about. So I'm trying to think about which ones to bring up. Maybe I'll list them all and we can go into depth in any of them. Maybe that's a good way to do it. Do you want to hear them? Yeah, I, it's fun to hear that. The titles. I, when I tell coincidence stories, I ask people to also to give a title uh, to keep the, the the details relevant to the audience rather than ones you like only. Yeah. And then to do a summary of meaning, uh, both personally and explanation. So yeah. let's do some titles. Well, the collection, the, the overall title of this collection would be, um, you know, the sad news of death. And the first example is a friend of mine, um, you know, was traveling in, uh, in another continent. Uh, and it was in the days before cell phones. And he just got this incredible feeling that his sister-in-law um, had passed away. And when in his trekking, he got back to a town, um, his brother, who was the husband of this woman, had sent him a telegram saying that his wife, my friend's sister-in-law, had died exactly when he knew she died, when he was up in the mountains. So that's example number one. You know, the, the, the simultaneity of it is a person, you know, getting an image of someone dying, the feeling that it's just a fact, and then finding out, in fact, it was a fact, and these were now thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away. You know, so... I, I, that, I call that simultaneity, the feeling of the pain of a loved one or somebody that you know yeah. well at a distance. My father was choking on his own blood yeah, and dying 3,000 miles away in Wilmington, Delaware. And I was standing in San Francisco over a sink, uncontrollably choking. Mm -hmm. And it happened to be that he died on my birthday uh, just to make it more memorable. So that yeah. led me to looking to asking questions of a lot of people through a, a, a questionnaire I developed, the Weird Coincidence Survey. Uh, does this happen? And a lot of people said sometimes. And yeah. I've seen other reports just like yours. So this is a reality. This happens to a lot of people. It's just yeah. that they don't talk about it. They don't talk about it because they say people think I'm nuts, you know. You the are second example. You are yeah. you are describing a common phenomenon, Dan, and that's it's amazing. It's a, and that I so I'm like you in doubting, and I want to do some science here because I've published on chest pain and panic disorder and a lot of other stuff. So yeah. I'm trying to be able to like to say it's does this real in a scientific right. yes that is real. I Meaning a lot of people have that happen. Yeah, they have it happen. You know, there's a book called Extraordinary Knowing, which systematically goes through how the CIA was uh, studying this kind of stuff. And it's a, it's a book, unfortunately, the author died before she, she could um, finish it. So my publisher actually finished the book for her, but that's a, that's a book that documents all this kind of stuff in a, from a doubting person. She was a therapist in Berkeley and she just, she didn't believe any of this stuff, but it kept on happening and she, and she just went on an exploration of it. Well, anyway, they they, she found the harp through a dowser, which was really you, quite. You know the book very good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That 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 blew. When you get a thing like that happening, your worldview begins to crumble, and it's got to be replaced. 
Yeah. So then someone who was a doubter of her, I believe, tried to hire the guy to do the same thing and he couldn't find anything he tried to find. So so then that person, I think, said, oh, it's, you know, just coincidence. Coincidence as in has no meaning. It's just random association. The second sad death story is, you know, I was taking care of a young patient. She unfortunately died uh, and just to to um, for confidentiality purposes, let's say she died in a very specific way. And let's just say it was drowning. Um, and and um, she was in one location. And after she died, sadly, her brother became my patient. And so did the whole family actually to deal with the death of this little kid. Um, it was an accident. So, I mean, obviously any accident could be pre prevented. So it was really upsetting to the whole family. Anyway, so I had the opportunity to actually work with the whole family. The, uh, the brother comes in and he says, I don't know what to do with this. I would never say this to anybody. But the morning my sister was drowning and dying, I was driving to work. I pulled over and I felt like I was drowning. I couldn't breathe. I was like gurgling. I couldn't. I actually, you know, called my work. I know exactly the time I called my work and said, I don't know what's going on. Maybe I'm having an asthma attack. I don't even have asthma. They said, pull over the car. Pull over. He pulled over the car, stay on the side of the freeway. He knows exactly when it was. It was exactly when his sister was drowning. Like 3,000 miles away. Three same as me, me and my father. And yeah. now let's, let, we may get, get back to some of the stories, but let's, let's go to uh, explanation. Clearly you're going to quantum entanglement as a way of uh, thinking about these, which is metaphorically appropriate to boom, boom, same thing. Well, yeah. So let's, let's, yeah. So let's look at this. We have, you know, in those two examples, and there were other examples related to this that are also quite, amazing but not not exactly about coincidences but let's just stay with those two um you know the and, and again i'm now channeling my colleague who says none of this is real it's all fictional talk by quantum physics people um but you know i have other colleagues who are quantum physicists professors of quantum physics who don't agree with that guy who's also trained in quantum physics and say, actually, this is real. So what they say is real, let's just point it out, is let's start with the, the uh, cover story of the Scientific American in July of 2018. That cover story basically said, where's the quantum divide when the Newtonian world and the quantum world meet each other? When does it switch over? Now, what are they talking about? And why was this in a very conservative um, public science journal, if it's just so out there? Well, because for many quantum physicists, it's, it's not out there. It's actually established. Um, just like you can have people pushing against evolution and say evolution doesn't exist. It's all random unfolding or, or the opposite. It's you know, by design or whatever, you know, um, th th in this article, what it says is that there are two realms we live in. There are, there are the large object realms that Isaac Newton figured out 350 years ago. And, you know, I, I, and, and, you know, Isaac Newton, you know, figured out these properties of planets and moons and, you know, an apple falling and that, these properties of large objects, you know, could 
have certain equations that explain their actions. Well, about 100 years ago, when you started studying small things, microstates, and these microstates are units of energy, and a unit of energy is called, um, basically they're quanta, these units of energy. So when you study like an electron, um, it's a what's called a probability field. And it turns out that the properties of an electron or a photon, these small little things, microstates, the properties that Newton talked about don't apply at all. And so they needed to develop other equations, which they did, which were actually even more accurate, but they were based on probability, not on the certainty that, uh, you know, when an apple falls, it's gonna go down, but on probability values. And in basic quantum physics is a set of equations that tries to uh, explain, if you will, and predict when you have certain situations like research paradigms, what's gonna happen. Okay, fine. The key thing about this quantum realm, if you will, which has these different properties than the large object Newtonian classical physics macrostate realm, the, the difference is just like you have a property in air, we walk around, you know, if I drop like a, uh, you know, uh, an object, it, it'll fall down. But if I'm in water, it's a different realm. And if I drop it, it might float. So we don't get like freaked out going, oh my God, Bernie and I are going swimming in a lake. We're floating. What's going on? This is so weird. But we're on land. We don't float. It's different properties. So the realms are, that's the analogy. The microstate realm, two things. One, um, there's no time variable in, in the, in the microstate realm. There's, you know, there's no thing called the arrow of time, which is a directionality of change, but in the Newtonian realm, there is called what's called the arrow of time. And what that's based on is the second law of thermodynamics, which basically if to remind people about what that means is everything's falling apart, going to entropy. And because of that, there's a directionality of change in the Newtonian realm. But the second law of thermodynamics, which is the origin of this directionality of change called the arrow of time, doesn't exist in microstates, second law of thermodynamics. So there's no time variable in the equations and there's no directionality of change. So you could say it's timeless. And you might say it's like that dimension of time that here in these bodies, as we're talking to each other, you feel like things are separated across time you know, there, there may be a way where it doesn't exist in the microstate realm. That's number one. Number two, the, the property of spatial separation that certainly exists and it's based on the equations of, you know, macro states, you know, we can say this object is a hundred feet away going this amount of speed. So the brakes have to stop the car in this amount of time. So there's not an accident. You want to drive in a Newtonian car. You know, when you go in an airplane, you want to be in a Newtonian airplane. You know, you may drive, you, know, you may fly in, in, in Qantas airlines, but you don't want to fly in quantum airlines, which is a probability. Like you get in the plane, you're going to New York, and they say you'll probably get there, but maybe not. You know, no, you want to get in a Newtonian plane, so there's a certainty to it, and you land there, you know, assuming it's safe. But the issue for microstates is that, and this is where entanglement comes up, there's no such thing like as a noun in the, in the quantum world that's an entity that's fully separate from other entities. 
there are activities, there are verbs that are massively interwoven with each other. And one way that's experienced is in this thing called entanglement, which is also called non-locality. And again, my colleague says this doesn't exist, but for those who believe it does exist, and just look at the 2015 article called Closing the Final Loophole, meaning there are all these loopholes in the studies that people said, oh, here's why it doesn't exist, here's why it doesn't exist. And then they did a study to close any complaints and everyone said, okay, it exists except my friend, <laughs> you know? Um, and so when you look at entanglement, what is it? You, 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 you pair up two electrons, one spins up, the other spins down. When you make the down one spin up, the up one has to spin down. They're complementary. They're in relationship to each other. And you separate them out by an inch. They still do it by 10 feet. They still do it by a mile. They still do it by thousands of miles. They still do it. There's even studies now of entanglement, uh, you know, from the Big Bang time in terms of the space and millions and millions of miles apart. And that's a fascinating study a couple of years ago. But the, the, the bottom line is, you know, Einstein, Albert Einstein, hated this and he called it spooky action at a distance because if it were something traveling between two things the thing that traveled had to go faster than the speed of light and his whole formulation was that nothing in the universe goes faster than the speed of light and he died you know saying i i don't really go for that what it's even weirder than something going faster than the speed of light number one no one believes that anything is going faster than the speed of light so Einstein was right. But the weirder part is in the quantum realm, when we apply the notion of spatial separation that impedes a relationality, it has no meaning. That space, just like time, don't exist in the quantum realm like they do in the Newtonian realm. So we get about 100 years to live in these bodies, okay, that's a chunk of the space-time block. But in, in the quantum realm, it's not like that. So when I learned about that, and I was also a therapist hearing all these stories or just a person having these experiences myself, you know, I started feeling like, I mean, these are subtle ones, but two examples I'll give you is, you know, I hadn't seen a patient for about, I don't know, seven, eight years hadn't really thought about her. I was busy with other patients and I'm walking in a park and I see this woman. I said, Oh, that's my patient. Let's call her whatever, Mary, whatever. So I said, Oh, that's Mary. And I look at her. That doesn't even look like Mary. Well, why, do, why am I thinking it's Mary? And then I go walk another 20 feet. I think, Oh, there's Mary. And I go, why am I thinking none of these people are Mary. And then, you know, an hour later, Mary calls me up and talked to her for eight years. And there she is. Now we're talking on the phone. And the next thing I know, you know, I'm going to the gym and there's Mary at the gym, you know? So like, what's with that? Or, you know, recently, just like last week, I hadn't seen a patient for a year, hadn't thought about him for a while. And then I look in a car at the same park and I think, oh, there's my patient. No, it's not my patient. And then half an hour later, he calls and says, I want to come see you, you know, first time in a year, you know? So things like that happen. I go, okay, well, you know, is there a feeling for the future or what's going on? And, you know, a dear friend of mine, a dear friend, he was a teacher, but I guess he called me his friend, which is very sweet. But before he died, um, suddenly he told me this incredible story and I won't tell you who he is 
because he told me that I never want anyone to know I had this experience because they'll think I'm nuts. And he was a dominant, a, a, a very prominent person in our field. Um, he said, you know, I had a dream. I had a dream like, uh, let me think how this went. I had a dream on a Saturday that the patient I was going to see on Monday, you know, um, that he was had this very specific kind of crime assaulted on him. Very, very, I mean, totally specific. I won't say the details because then you can figure out what this is. But it was very specific in all its detail. And then on Monday, the patient doesn't show up and calls him on Tuesday and says, I'm sorry, um, you know, I couldn't come in yesterday, but can I see you tomorrow? Because this is the crime that happened to me. And it was exactly like his dream on Saturday. So what my teacher said to me, he goes, what's going on here that I could feel into the future, not even simultaneously. So, and at a physical distance. So, um, I, I, you know, these are things, you know, when I've talked to uh, intuitives who have this happen all the time, or I met an intuitive um, a couple months ago and we were having dinner and she told me she was intuitive. Tell me what that's like. And she has these experiences all the time um, of just simultaneity or feeling across space what's going on or even across time a little bit and it freaks her out. So she's tried to try to shut it down because she, she was kind of losing her mind and it was just too much, but she tends to stay with her husband just by herself. Um, or, you know, I was on the phone the other day with a group I meet with regularly. And this is what three of the people said the same thing in this conversation. They're doing this practice called the wheel of awareness that we do, which is where you separate the pure awareness in the hub from what you're aware of on the rim. And the more they started doing it, the more synchronicity became a part of their life. And I found that too, that the more I can make sure I'm doing a regular practice. Um, and it, you know, if you look at the book aware, what, what I think is going on is that in that hub, you're moving from your focus on bodily experience, which is Newtonian, to pure awareness, which is more quantum. And then as you do that, you actually open the mind by letting go of the filters that are keeping you focused just on the Newtonian macrostate world, which you have to, you have to navigate your body. Um, and you're dropping into this space where, you know, when you get into that space, like I remember once as a resident even, um, or no, no, I guess I was the training director. Yeah, I was the training director already. Um, I needed to talk to four people that day. And I, I didn't know how I was going to reach them. So at UCLA, there's like this, you know, we have these eight floors. So I had to go from the ground floor up to the top floor. So I get in the elevator. And then sure enough, on the next floor, one of the people I need to speak to gets in there. So on that elevator ride, I talk to her. Then when I start writing down, the other person gets in. And within 20 minutes just going up and down the elevator. I got everybody I had to talk to. I just said, oh my gosh. And the last thing I'll say in terms of like localization, uh, you know, is I'm dear friends with, um, with Jack Cornfield. And uh, uh, I was going, we both live in California and we, uh, I was going to New York to teach and I was going to have a little visit. I, I took my mom with me, you know, and she was, I think at the time, like 88 and, and I was going to take her there because she's from New York and whatever. So I said, you pick a hotel, whatever you want to pick, you know, we'll, we'll go there. So she finds a hotel near where she grew up. And it's like this real funky, 
nothing that you'd ever go to if you were like at a big, big conference. It was like teeny little hotel and it, you know, my mom's an, a, a wonderfully quirky person. So it's great, you know, but it's like, like no one's there. So we go, we're, we're about to go out for a walk and it looks like it might be rainy. So we go back up in the elevator, back to our room. We get our umbrella and a, and a coat and we get back in the elevator and then Jack is in the elevator. And, and we ride down with them. We go for a walk with them in Central Park and and I go, what, how are you in this hotel? He goes, I don't really know. I was supposed to be in another hotel. And then something weird happened. And then the people in, in the, I, I said, I don't even know you're going to be in New York. He goes, yeah, well, I'm giving a talk. And the people, for some reason, I don't even know why, moved me to this hotel. And so we were hanging out together. And I always wanted my mom to meet him because he's one of my closest friends. And so we were like, you know, doing that. And I had to leave early. And so Jack was hanging out with my mom, you know, and uh, like, cause they're in the same hotel. So it, like, what's with that? You know how many hotels there are? And I guess I'll say one more location thing about New York. So you, this is like, you know, someone this called is- and says, uh, we want you to come give a lecture in New York city. I said, fine, I'm happy to come. They go, but we have no money to give you. And, you know, we can't even put you up in a hotel. I said, you want me to fly to New York? You want me to give a talk and you're not going to pay me and you're not going to put me up. They go, no, well, maybe we can get you miles and you can fly the miles. So I said, I mean, I really believe in your mission. It was a nonprofit organization. I said, so let me, let me talk to my, my wife about, about it. She goes, oh, well, I have an idea. I said, what? She goes, before you talk to your wife, just tell her you can stay here. I said, but we have two kids. She goes, I've got enough room. Your wife and your kids can stay with me. I know it sounds weird, but you can stay at my place. You don't even know me. I said, all right, well, let me, let me talk to my wife. So my wife is game for stuff like that. So we go there. Right. And so it's in New York and um, it's somewhere, you know, on a, the side of town. I knew my mom grew up in. So I called my mom. I said, Hey mom, uh, how are you? She goes, fine. I said, we're in New York. She goes, Oh, where are you? I said, you know, we're on West end Avenue. She goes, well, you know, are you far from where I grew up? I said, well, what address did you grow up on? She gives me the address. Let's just make up it's one, two, three, West End Avenue or something. It's not that, but let's say it's that. So I say to the person who's hosting us, I said, hey, Rebecca, you know, um, how far are we from one, two, three, West End Avenue? She goes, well, what do you mean? I said, how far are we from one, two, three, West End Avenue? She goes, what do you mean? So I said, hold on, mom. I said, how far are we from one, two, three, West End Avenue? She goes, you're in one, two, three, West End Avenue. Now, what's the, what's the chance of all the buildings in New York City that I would be in this building my grandparents, my mom's parents, raised her in? It wasn't the exact apartment, but it was literally down the hall. And we went down the hall, we took a video, and they let us in, and I could see my mom's room and all this stuff. You know, what's the chance of that? You know, so... Um, it's wild. I'm going to give you one more story. I mean, hey, hold on, hold on to one more story, then, because because uh, I know this story 
Okay, okay. This story will blow your mind. Because I I think maybe we can lead up to this story with uh, having a discussion about this. Yeah, I'm sorry. Am I going on too much? It's just... Of course, and it's great. (laughs) Not too much. I mean, you're a great great raconteur, a great storyteller. It's fascinating (laughs) listening to you. But let's pause that. Let's put the storyteller on pause for a minute and look at what I'm doing and what you implicitly are doing, which is to collect the stories and see if they can be categorized in some way. That is the beginning of science, to be, of, a, of a science, yeah. to observe and to categorize. Mendeleev um, yeah. understood that. A lot of people understood it. Put the stuff in categories. So I enjoy your excitement about these. Like, what are the chances? Yeah, th- these are low probability events, and the low probability events catch our attention. And you, they've caught your attention. It doesn't mean that we know how they work. What the statisticians do is say low probability is still going to happen. But just, just because you had a mother, she doesn't explain all your bad behavior when you're older either. It's, right. a, it's a quality of the thing itself. So what you're doing, and I'm so glad to hear you doing it with your excitement with it, is listing the the kinds of coincidences that blow your mind that are low probability. Now, the next question is what do they mean to you, which maybe we'll we'll get into, but then what, because we're curious, both of us, we wanna know why, why'd this happen? So you're going for, you're going for the, the soup du jour these days, which is uh, quantum physics. Um, And that's like, a lot of people get into what some people call quantum mysticism. Yeah, exactly. What I wanted to get to and hope to write here is interpersonally extended mind that you are involved with, that w- our minds are part of our environment and our environment is part of our minds. Yeah. We, we live in this web of connections. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is the better way of looking at all this stuff, that we are connected in various ways, sometimes intensely, sometimes not so intensely, but those patients that you've talked about that were connected, that you feel coming, yeah. you're connected to them. And they, in the, there's a science fiction uh, story, a uh, video, which is, you don't have to call somebody, you just think of calling them and you can tele- telepath with them as if you're doing it on a cell phone. Yeah, I've never been able to do that, but uh, but I, I must say I do. My wife and I um, will say things that are absolutely in the other person's mind. But we've been together. I mean, we did this since we first met, but you know, we've been together almost forty years. But uh, um, uh, to yeah. do it to do it deliberately, we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, yeah, that's I've what never I'm, been able to do that. No, I, to do it, people are afraid of it. We don't know how to use it for good reason. But I'm trying to suggest that those patients that you saw. But they yeah. weren't the patients, but they were the patients. They were the harbingers of the patients. Yeah. They were pushing a button that says, Dan Siegel, I am thinking of you and I need you. And that yeah. button that that registered because of the web of interconnectedness that you and I are part of. Exactly. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. I had to, uh, uh, I hadn't seen a patient for two weeks, an active patient. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to text him, make sure everything's okay. So I text him. And just as I send, he sends me back within like 15 seconds. I was just texting you. Now that's happened a lot, you know? So, 
so and, but so if you talk about like I, I do um, some uh, collaborative work with Meta Bowl and Peter Sange who work in something called systems awareness and Otto Sharmer, who's also at MIT, the, the three of them are at MIT in various capacities um, on, and we're looking at something that we just, let's just name it, it's called a relational field. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And so we're, we're trying to figure out how to study it. You know, people who are linear scientists think it's ridiculous that you have an entity here, an entity here, there is no field. But Faraday, you know, was talking about electromagnetic fields and people thought he was ridiculous. So, you know, we don't know how to measure it, but in at least let's let's let go of the time issue that you can get a sense of what's going to happen in the future. And let's just talk about a field. You know, when people talk about fields and certainly Rupert Sheldrake is a good example of a morphogenic field of like a field of knowledge that, you know, if someone starts making, you know, asparagus pie, you know, in North America, soon they're going to make it in Australia. And then when they start making it in Africa, you know, they're going to be much better making it because the morphogenic field has shifted. And he's written about that. When he's tried to speak about it, you know, he'll get he'll, people say, oh, can't, it's impossible. What you're saying is outrageous. It's just woo woo. No, forget it. Um, but he very I remember having dinner with him once, you know, he very systematically trained as a really rigorous scientist like you is just open to what this field is. So the morphogenic field of Rupert Sheldrake is one thing to consider. And he has a book uh, called The Feeling of Being Stared at, I think. And yeah, that's another right. one. And another one is about the dog study, yeah. you know, the where they have a the owner randomly get up from work and go home and the dog knows, you know, when your their owner is coming home randomly. So I mean that's that's a research-based paradigm to talk about the dog and the owner where you can just look at the data the dog knows when the owner is now headed home goes to the window to wait at the time that the owner is randomly alerted now for someone who's like a you know real linear thinker they go it's not possible the dog can't know it's just random 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 but when you do the analysis it's not random so then you go, well, what is that? So now let's talk about a relational field. Yes. The, the field would be that you are you are in such attunement with your dog. Maybe you don't have those skills, but your dog does. You know, and so your dog feels you when you're getting up to come home, feels your intention. So intention um, is a mental state. It's like a directionality of energy flow that then is what gets your body to get up out of work when you're randomly beeped to go home. And now you're in the car coming home. Now that's physical motion. But even before the physical motion, the intentionality is also a kind of a leaning of pushing energy in a certain direction. That's intention. Attention is actually driving uh, that energy flow in a certain way that can process information or even put things in awareness sometimes. Um, and and it's possible that the dog can feel that, you know, and we have a way of measuring it in real time and in physical presence where, you know, we can look at each other's eyes and see, are you really paying attention to me? Or just notice, you know, the, the timing of the way we respond to see you're really tuned into what I'm saying. But that's in real time. And, and you know, Marco Iacoboni, I-A-C-O-B-O-N-I, has a beautiful uh, book called Mirroring People. And he's done work in uh, mirror neuron processes in humans 
And when I've talked to intuitives about the mirror neuron system as it's known, at least one of them said to me, she was a very well-known intuitive, she said, you've just explained my whole life. I must have so many mirror neurons that it drives me nuts sometimes, but it's also useful because I can somehow feel some kind of field and some people are more attuned to it than others, you know, and, and, and I think you can uh, cultivate your ability to feel, but that now that's in real time, Bernie, where you're in the physical space, your senses are picking up signals from another human being in front of you. So that's one thing might relate to mirror neurons uh, and that whole network. But the other thing we're talking about is physical distance even further, you know, than the three feet where we think the heart aligns with itself with, with fields that resonate in, with a three foot distance or even visual input or hearing someone. Now we're talking about, you know, these other processes where there's some kind of field that kind of fits into it. And, you know, one example would be across time. I mean, I'll, I'll just give you an example. I don't, have many friends. I, I, I like just when I make friends, they're really close, deep friends. And so I'm, you know, I, it's not like I'm, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm very close, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit of a hermit, whatever, but I have a few friends. Anyway, one of my friends says, um, Hey, uh, my mom's going to visit from New York. Your mom's from New York, right? I go, yeah. Uh, he goes, how about if we have the boys take their moms, you know, in their late eighties to dinner? I said, that sounds great. So his mom comes from New York. My mom is in LA and we find a restaurant. I'm taking my mom, you know, helping her walk to the restaurant. We show up and uh, my mom looks at this woman. She goes, what's your name? And I'll make up a name just to hide their, their confidentiality. Let's call her another Mary. So Mary, she goes, well, Mary, Mary, what? And she says the last name of my friend, which is her husband's name, right? And she goes, no, no, no. What was your name before you were married? So she says her name. And it's her best friend who lived down the hall from her in a different building when she was a little younger. From six to 12, they were inseparable. And we, that visit when I saw Jack, I had taken my mom down the street to the other apartment she was in, um, not the one I ended up staying in. And she told me about this person but there are lots of Marys and I didn't even know my friend's mother's name. So our mothers, this is one of my few friends, our mothers were best friends because they lived in a building together in New York. So we look at each other, my friend and I, and we go, wow, I mean, what is the chance of that? Now you could say, well, you know, you both had New let, York. Let, let's not do that chance thing because we already done that enough. We've beaten it into the ground. The, yeah. the important thing, for me with you, Dan, is yeah. the interpersonal field to, yeah, exam so to, to examine that because uh, uh, let me try this on you because I think these coincidences are markers of the connections we are having in a dynamic fashion in this interpersonal field. I think so too. I mean, I, I, it feels that way and, um, you know, it's almost like uh, that field exists in the present moment if we use Newtonian markers of time. Yeah. But it also feels as if, <clears throat> just like people look at gravity as 
kind of a bend in the space time continuum, you know, and in these dips, things pull down there. And I know that sounds weird for everyone, but if you That's look all at, right. you know, it, issues. So it almost feels like when you look at, if you look at the attempt to draw a picture, just take a look at it of how people are thinking what gravity is, a bend in the space time continuum that pulls things in. Well, what that means is that this field that is, we live it as gravity all the time, you know, is something that exists beyond just this, what we call this moment in space. Yeah. You know, where we call now, right? So that, that, so that a field for these bodies that are trying to articulate this with these words is in, in, in physics terms, a real thing that exists beyond the present moment, right? And there's an edge of the present that can go backwards or forwards, you yeah. know, that what we would call past and future. Yeah, yeah. So in that sense, for my friend's mother and my mother being best friends, you could say that somehow that was part of a field and somehow, because my friend actually doesn't have many friends either. So like, like we found each other as people who don't have friends and somehow we are friends. You know, and now our sons are like really best friends. So it's like, so it's almost like it's this field, you know, it's like this field of something that you feel like gravity, like dips you into it. And it was just like, I don't want to say inevitable, but the unfolding of it was natural. Let's put it that way. And, you know, and so it comes out like that. And uh, the, so unfold, the unfolding has a lot to do with personal responsibility that you played a big part in all of this happening. You, with whatever we mean by free will, you were able to make some kinds of decisions which allowed this field to unfold. And looking at what you do, how you think, how you feel, that leads to this and to that uh, is a very important part of all this. Yeah, well, let me, let me ask you about that. Let me, let me come back to your phrase, you allowed the field to unfold. Yeah. So tell me more about that, because I, I can see our behavior can allow something to unfold, but I can also see where our our mental state, our awareness and openness um, can be either more or less sensitive to a field that's there and we can ignore the field and then maybe it feels awkward. We don't feel like we belong um, or we can. So the field is the field and we're not allowing to unfold we're just allowing ourselves to flow with it in a flowing way or we're fighting it so but so, so what does that feel like to you bernie that it, it feels <laughs> like being able to allow for weird stuff to happen and to recognize yeah. that it's part of the reality that we are living in and that the experiences that you describe uh which are really fun to hear you describe and the fun you have in experiencing them and re-experiencing them. Yeah. It's infectious. That's part of what drives my interest in all this because they are both fun and they're learning too. I, I thrive at the learning entertainment interface. So it's got to be fun. And it's got to be interesting. And that's what, yeah. you, that's what you are just talking about. But in order for that to happen, I, you have to be open and expected. I, it's happened to me from the beginning of my life, practically eight or nine, where I lost my dog, my dog got lost and I got lost and we found each other. And it was one of the most important experiences of my life because I needed that dog and he was lost. What happened? 
uh, he, I came home from school when I was eight or nine and said, Hey mom, where's snapper. And she said, go to the police station. Maybe they know. So I got on my bike and went to the police station and climbed up the stairs and asked the big man behind the desk, have you seen my dog? He said, no, I started crying. Rather than go back the way I came, I was crying so much, I went back another way that was new to me. And there he was coming right, wow. toward, he coming right towards me. So I, I needed him and he, there he was. And we had another four years together and it was wonderful. He was really my best friend then. And it just oh. wonderful having him. And I st I'll still start crying about it too, because he was so important to me. And that yeah. was the beginning of my interest in all this, that it's not, uh, it's that, that, that we are connected and that we have to be open. And my tears and getting lost make that field more open to us and our needs and our intentions. So let's go to that moment. The, the, the policeman says, I don't know where your dog is. You're crying. You get back on your bike. So what's your sense of what the field is that had you steer your bike in a new way, maybe a way you've never gone before, and Snapper was there. What, what's your sense of what is that field? Was my, it rea my, my reality had gotten shattered. Mm -hmm. That having him in part of my life, I'll start crying again. Having him as part of my life meant he wasn't going to be part of my life. And right. that, that just, that just uh, devastated me. So and in that moment of devastation, I think I could feel where he was because I was not guarding, guiding myself. I was just riding my bike. So you were broken open by the, the, the despair about that. Yes. Now, in that broken openness, then you're feeling the field that would allow your bike just to find itself almost like someone finding water, you know, with those divinators or whatever they're called. You, you, you just followed the, the, the flow of the field, just like that gravity thing we're talking about. And it brought you to Snapper. Yep. I call it human GPS. Uh, yeah. So, so your sense is that, that sometimes before you're broken open, you would say, well, I've, there, the policeman says, no, I've got to go home. It's dinner time. So I just take the same path that I'm familiar with. And now you don't find Snapper. But in the breaking open, then the field that's already there. So you're not creating the field. The field between you and Snapper is so powerful that you have to get out of your logical mind, if you will, and let maybe it's your heart, maybe it's your gut. Uh, you know, it's my heart. It's feel, my heart. It's my it's heart. Your heart. So your heart is feeling the field and says, I don't know why, but I'm going that way. Yeah. And I, I, I think there's a huge amount to that. I know even as a therapist, sometimes I'll, 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 I'll have a feeling to say something. I'll go, that's a weird thing to say. So then I, it comes up again. I said, that's really weird. Don't say that. Then it comes up three times. And when it comes up three times in me, it's usually like in my heart or my gut, not my head. I'll say, um, I don't know why I'm going to say this, but it's come up three times. It seems really like a non sequitur, but I just need to say it. I would say, you know, that's happened maybe a hundred times in my career, maybe more, but 99 out of 100. I only remember one time when it wasn't right on the money, but I didn't think about it. I didn't come up with it because I'm like, smart or something no it's it was some kind of field between me and the patient and it was something that like had nothing to do with really anything we were particularly specifically talking about and somehow it was something i heard from them maybe nine months earlier i heard read on the, in the newspaper last week or something 
And I'll just say it. And then they start crying and crying. They go, oh, my God, that's exactly it. Blah, 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 blah. You know, now you could say, well, it's just because you said it was coming from your heart or, you know, that that's what made them have a big response to it. So I could undo the, the, the thing we're talking about. But let's go with the idea. It's a relational field. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I do believe there's a big possibility that they're just like Faraday said there's electromagnetic fields and people around him said you can't see them you're out of your mind and all of our electronics are based on those it really could be just to name it specifically that there is a field energy patterns that connect us yes to this larger process yes there's yes. like a gravitational field yes yes why wouldn't there be a relational field why why wouldn't there because there is and you know it from the work you've done i call it the our mental atmosphere uh the yeah. psychosphere it's a noosphere is a name that Desharan gave to it we have many names for it i like the way you think about it i can see the web that you already know between the individual and the person's environment you think in the terms of that web yeah i can i can see visually when you're talking that you can see that i think similarly so it's really a, i really appreciate seeing your mind reflecting something that is very clear in my mind yeah well these relational fields just this is a little bit of a side thing, but I just want to tell you about and, and everyone about this amazing book that was written by um, a Nobel Prize winner climate scientist, um, Karen O'Brien, called You Matter More Than You Think. It's about what she calls, and it's, there's a whole movement called quantum social change. And I can't remember in the book if she actually says the word relational field. But it's about everything we're talking about. But it's about the idea that the idea you matter more than you think that as you open up to what you and I are talking about, Bernie, relational field. And I don't think uh, O'Brien talks about it in the book, but but it's the same sort of thing that there is there is a way we deeply uh, influence each other. Yes. And a field is one way to describe yes. it, even if she doesn't use that term, you know, and. The, the reason, and it is important to avoid quantum mysticism, but the reason to bring up the, the empirical findings from quantum physics is just that some of these things happen in spatial distances that you may say, uh, oh, it's not possible, but, but entanglement called non-locality shows, at least if that's true, how that could absolutely be possible. Number two, in terms of physics, you know, electromagnetic fields <coughs> happen really fast. So even if they're not simultaneously, even if it's the flow of something going the speed of light, um, you know, there are fields. There are fields. Think about a magnet that can push another magnet there, when it's, you know. There, there are fields. We, there are fields. And I want to get you to believe it better even than you do right now. Well, I always have a doubting mind. I, know, but I, I, know, I, I, yeah. I, I can feel that now. You got to keep hitting with the science part of it. I think quantum, I love that. I don't want, I don't want to fly quantum airlines when I'm right. flying. That was a good one. Yeah, I hope you've used that before. Yeah, uh, I, I think I put it in... Uh, I think I put it in my book Mind. Yeah, it was, it was a funny joke like that. The quant the quantum is like a bet as a quantum step, <laughs> quantum leap from uh, Jung synchronicity theory. Uh, yeah, it, it's a quantum leap <laughs> to something that's better, but it's not. 
it allows us to stand there, but it's to me, it's the interpersonal field that you are so sensitive to, that you work in, that you live in, that you know about, that you describe. Yeah. That interpersonal field, meaningful coincidences extend our knowledge of it. That's what I'm right. that's what I'm well, adding. That's what I'm adding to what I think you're talking about. Yeah. Well, I agree. They extend our knowledge and and in Karen O'Brien's wonderful book where she is as a scientist <clears throat> carefully noting quantum physics findings and applying them to relationality okay that's what she does so the the, <clears throat> the conclusion of the book you matter more than you think which is also the book's title is taking like in a sense the 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 thing where you as an individual and i'll put it in my own terms i don't think she uses these terms but i think it would resonate with her um, you as an individual are like a node in a system that is connected within these fields. Yes. That you and I are talking about, right? Yes. So that as a node, then if you say, I'm going to bring more kindness to the world, even if you look at Christakis and Fowler's book, Connected. Yeah. They are epidemiologists. Um, I don't even think they use the word relational field, but they do talk about systems. They draw a relational field for sure. Yeah, and they draw it for sure. So let's just use that word, even though we, we don't want to say a word that they may not have used, but, but they draw it out and they basically say there are nodes in the system, which an individual can be a node, where if you start acting with more kindness and compassion and care, you will start, if, you will start influencing the field. So here's where it's you're not only like, sensing the field now you're influencing the field so if you bring anger and destruction the field will have that that effect if you bring kindness and love and compassion you're gonna have that effect so karen o'brien's beautiful book you matter more than you think is basically urging us in terms of climate change in particular but you could apply it to racism and violence and all sorts of things but with climate change it's saying we need to bring an awareness of our deeply, I call it intraconnected in this last book I've just finished, you know, the intraconnected nature of the field of all of life. Yes. Means that we are nodes that can influence in a positive. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yes, you're get in your way, you're getting the where I am uh, in, in thinking about these things. And we're going to have to stop in a little bit, but I, yeah. you mentioned climate change and uh, I and uh, and other problems, which uh, racism and anti-immigrants and uh, the, the other. I mean, there's a lot of kinds of places to go. But what I'm interested in developing is a, a psychotherapy for what I call the collective human organism. Yeah. A psychotherapy that helps us undo the denial using Prochaska as stages of change where pre-contemplation to contemplation to change and then maintenance that somehow we get people out of the relative denial mm. into contemplating what needs to happen. Some people are moving that way. But what, yeah. do you th what do you think about the idea of developing a psychotherapy for the collective human organism? You know, this last book I just wrote, I think, is exactly that. Oh, it is. Yeah. Uh, Intraconnected. It, it, it's I actually if I had to do like a quick elevator speech, I think that's what it would be. And basically what it says is that modern culture 
for humanity has created this vision of the self as separate, not a part of these big fields we're talking about. And in that separation, there's a disconnection and a violation of what's called integration. So we're excessively differentiated. So the despair and distress and disease is really a disease of disconnection. That's for humanity. Then if you look at the fact that since 1970, we've lost two thirds of all the species that existed when many of us were kids, they're gone now. Humans did that. So this excessive differentiation is not only causing human suffering, it's causing suffering for our, human, our nature family. So the book is a plea to look at what the self is defined as in modern culture. So in that sense, it's asking us to widen a lens of identity. And that's the therapeutic intervention, if you will. You say, well, what's going on? Um, and uh, by seeing even the word interconnected is better than being disconnected, but even interconnected implies, you know, I'm here, you're there. So, so intraconnected implies that there's a wholeness to everything that is the field that we're talking about that we can actually support. It's, it's being nurturing. I, 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 I'd like, I'm going to ask uh, Christy to send me a copy of that. Uh, and to be able to like maybe come back and talk with you about this. Absolutely. I, this, this is so crucial because uh, I have some, some ideas that might re resonate with what you're talking about there. And the specific idea of mine in my elevator speech is that to notice that intraconnectedness, yeah. synch synchronicity, serendipity, as well as meaningful coincidence generally, show us the invisible connections between us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where, you know, it's a teeny bit of a shift. This is what's so um, hopeful about taking this approach is that, you know, if people are living a life of separation, then the only solutions they see are from disconnection. But the true healing of the planet is going to come from embracing the reality of the connectedness, the intraconnectedness of the whole. So as you go through the journey of the book, Bernie, let me know what you think, because, you know, I, I've written a, a few books and, and it's always, a, you know, um, it's inside of me as a writer to say, I want this to be a relationship with the reader. And so as you go through, it's inviting you to explore, you know, how did your sense of self develop? You know, what were the forces from culture or your family? or experience that pushed you for a construction of the separation, possibly, and then what can you do in their exercises, you know, to then expand your sense of self, not get rid of self, but rather expand it. So the way we like to say that is you have an inner me, you have a relational we, and together when you integrate those, you have a me plus we is we. Beautiful, beautiful. So as we, as we end and look forward to another conversation with you, Dan, um, tell us something uh, per more personal about you besides that you, you know a lot of people for sure, but you have just a few close friends, which wasn't evident from what you were saying before. And I'm glad that <laughs> I, I'm glad to get that clear because I'm kind of, I'm really like that too. I like, I got to think, and that's usually doing it by myself someplace. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm still connected with my thoughts have me connected i'm not disconnected but it's not yeah. physical presence so tell us something about about dan siegel that's a little more personal wow um let's see well i i, I guess what i for some reason this comes to mind um 
you know, I, I, we have an online program and uh, people trained in that. And one of the online uh, participants once came to a live thing before the pandemic. And she was from an indigenous culture from the Lakota tribe. And she said, I'm really confused by, uh, by being here because, you know, I, I was hearing your name online, but I, I'm confused. I said, what, what's you, what are you confused about? She said, I thought your name was Dan Siegel. I said, my name is Dan Siegel. She goes, no, I thought your name was Dan Siegel. Exactly. You heard it, Bernie. So she goes, Dance Eagle. And she had, written, she had read in my book, Mind, that I used, I dropped out of medical school to pursue my passion for dance. Um, so that's, that's my new name is Dance Eagle. Um, and I loved what she said. And um, it just was sort of freeing to, uh, first of all, to honor, you know, what dance is. Dance is such a way to get out of just our heads and into our bodies and move and, uh, and connect with other people and music. And so um, I know what you mean. I, I go to dance uh, at least twice a week. Uh, oh, fantastic. Yeah. It's, are you still going? I, well, I dance here in my, my home a lot because, because of the pandemic, but uh, right. yeah, but whenever I, I could, I'd go with my wife. Well, I'm, I'm going to say goodbye. Dance Siegel. <laughs> dance Siegel. Yes. Dance Eagle. Dance, dance Eagle. Eagle. Dance Eagle. Um, yeah. Kind of say bye, Dance Eagle. And until until we meet again, au revoir. Au revoir. Great to dance with you, Bernie. Thank you, Dan. This psychosphere is our mental atmosphere. Cosmic consciousness